Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another super impressive guest. We have with us David, who I'm sure you've probably seen all over LinkedIn, smashing it with articles on Peer. But David's a, I don't know where to start. He's a surgeon, a researcher, a technologist, an innovator. He's worked and studied both the UK and US. He's the clinical leader and excellence at Innoverse. Works with startups, does coaching, loves so many weird and wonderful things. However, the most interesting thing, and I want to get to find out a bit more, is how you became a test driver for Toyota. So why don't we start with that? And then all the surgeon, you know, all, all the boring stuff, right? You know, working with Venture, t Capital, and all of that jazz. We'll come to later. Tell us about this Toyota thing. But yeah, before we go in, welcome to the show, buddy. How are you? Welcome to the show. That's a lovely intro. Pleasure to meet you guys, honestly. It's... Um listen to your podcast for a while now and uh very impressed with what you're doing so no thank you thank you so much yeah how do i become a test driver for toyota it's a good question it's lexus as well actually it's good fun okay um mm. it was a, it was actually through a really good friend of mine george williams uh, you might have heard of him he takes a lot of amazing pictures for uh i think for rolls royce for bentley mm. for aston martin he's taken pictures for formula one cars etc he's He's actually an incredible photographer. He's a, he's a genius. Um, mm -hmm. And we knew each other from when we were teenagers and we both had like, you know, obsession with cars. And, um, and he, he, he called me out one day and said, listen, you know, I've, I've got, I've got this land of this job as a photographer for, yeah. for, for Toyota. We're doing these adverts. I was like, count me in. I was like, we need a driver. So, okay, cool. I'll be there. So, um, so actually most of the, to be fair, most of them were just driving a, a Prius or a, okay. when the seven seater Prius came out, there was a, um, we had to take a Quidditch team up mm. to Manchester and take them back and then take pictures with this Quidditch okay. team. And it was, it was like wild, but then to be fair, like the fun stuff started happening when the, when the GT86 came out, um, and we took that around to like different beaches and different um spots we went to the highest road the oldest road the steepest mm. road um the most undulating road in the country oh wow so we you know we put mileage on on some of those cars um like rav4s and all sorts of stuff it was good fun enjoyed it no i think yeah, that's such a quirky thing to do um and i don't think anyone expected that so uh bringing it all the way back you know a young david Kind of tell us about kind of the motivation to kind of go into med school, become a doctor. Um, tell us a bit about that journey and kind of bring us up to speed to what you're doing currently. Yes, I was expecting this question. It's um, actually, I was listening to a couple of the podcasts um, that you've done in the past, and I related to a lot of them. In in mm. the, you know, my father's a doctor, um, mm. and there was a lot of pressure on me to do medicine. I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I don't know if I have to pay mm. you for this kind of, you know, counselling session now, but. <laughs> it was, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of it is, is based on societal and familial pressures, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've, you've got to, you've got to fulfill, you know, either law or engineering or, um, you know, something like that, your, your classic, um, uh, uh, you know, modules, but I'll be honest with you ever since I was a child, and maybe this was because my father was a doctor, maybe the amount of times whenever I was ill, he was always there. He was incredible. Um, he, he studied as a pediatrician, um, initially. You know, he was um, my inspiration. I've got to be honest. I I always saw myself as a doctor. I couldn't see myself doing anything else. But saying that, I was always always trying to tear things apart 
someone else's child. It was like, it doesn't matter whether it was like a laptop or a computer or um, just even some of the toys. I wouldn't play with the toys. I'd just take them apart. Mm, um, yeah. And I noticed, you know, very early on that I actually had this passion for engineering and building things. And um, yeah, it was interesting getting into medicine. It was like, well, is this the right thing for me? Mm-hmm. Um, I knew deep down it was. I love to help people. I'm very empathetic and sympathetic guy, but also, um, you know, I, I was very hands-on, and that's I think where, you know, the idea of surgery and wanting to go mm-hmm. down that route. Because I'll be honest, throughout med school, even I was, you know, debating. I quite enjoyed psychiatry as a topic. I quite enjoyed um, rheumatology at one point uh, because I did a BSc in um, uh, immunology before I got to medicine, and. Yeah, I, I guess I guess there were there were aspects of everything kind of boiling together to, to point me in a direction of um, of doing surgery eventually because because of my engineering like core hmm. closet engineer is the way I put it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. No, it's interesting you said that. A lot of people, in addition to having this passion to help people to be a medic, maybe exposed to a lot of physicians in the the fan household, they also had this other side of them. You know, it, it it's an always stuff like creativity, drawing, painting, dancing, and for you it was kind of technology, um, which is interesting. And somehow they've managed to kind of combine it towards the end of the career after med school, foundation training. Um, tell us a bit more about foundation training. You know, when you hit the shop floor per se, how was it? Did it live up to expectations? Because I know even at, at med school, we're infatuated. With, we couldn't wait to get onto the wards. Now we regret it, right? We want to go back to being a student. But tell us about that experience. That's a, that's a good question. I mean, look, you know, I worked hard at med school, not initially, I'm going to be honest with you initially. Um, so to, to give you a bit of backdrop, I didn't get to med school the first time. Um, okay. you know, I was one of these people that had predicted five A levels, A stars or A's, whatever they were at the time. And I'll be honest, I rested on my laurels and I was too busy hustling. I was creating all these little devices and selling them on eBay. I was a bit of a power <laughs> seller back then. And, um, I distracted myself. I didn't, I didn't study too hard, um, um, on, because I'd rested on my laurels. This is what's key here. Mm. So I ended up getting into um, biomedical science and I immersed myself fully into every possible society and did everything I possibly could. I ended up taking a sabbatical year working in the students union and then got my medical place. So by then I was at this medical school in St. George's for four years mm. um, already. And so I started my fifth year there as a graduate program. And, you know, like, okay, this, you know, the graduate program is very much a, like, the, um, uh, 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 like a, a capture all for all the clinical basic science in your first year. It's like a crash course yeah. in mm. 365 days. And I'd already done it for biomedical science. So to be honest, for the first few years, I didn't work that hard, but towards the end, I realized look, I actually want to do the best I possibly can. I worked as hard as I could. I studied with some of the most intelligent people. Um, mm. working late into the night, um, you know, and, and doing everything possible to, to give us the best chance. And I did, did okay at med school, gave myself a decent mm. score from the med school side. Mm. And then came the Hogs, Hogwarts sorting hat, which is the SJC. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. And I'll be honest, I didn't, you know, I studied for that as well. I will be honest with you, I studied as hard as I could, but back then it was very early on. and We didn't know which were the best books or banks, etc. I think we were one of the guinea pig years. And um, so I got my third choice foundation program. I had to travel a little bit out um, into New Hampshire, Basingstoke Hospital. 
and it was you know surrounded by very cool people there i got to say it was um tight-knit community we were probably one of the last of the you know we all lived in halls on site and worked in the hospital together and went out together and those kind of things which yeah nowadays is not as unheard of right um so i had a, had a great time there i learned a lot as well some of those firms are so hard you know mm. you know one of them was run like like the army i'm gonna be honest with you <laughs> Um, and so I learned a lot about myself, how, how much I could push myself as well. Um, but I will be honest, you know, it came to F2 and I really, I was really focused on orthopedics and surgery by then. I mm. realized that, um, I wasn't going to get that with my mainly community-based, um, subjects for F2. So, uh, I don't think you could do this anymore, but I actually left the mm. foundation program. Oh, wow. And, um, but before I did, I found a mentor. Yeah. And this is what's really key, I think, um, throughout most of your podcasts, is that finding a mentor um, that takes you under their wing, obviously sees them and you in some some mm. regards. And, and I did. I found uh, Prof. Adrian Wilson. He was he was an incredible orthopedic surgeon. He still is. Um, and he took me under his wing. He taught me everything that he knew about knee surgery. And I became a research fellow for him. Mm. At that point, um, uh, I then um, began to work at, UCL, I applied for a job at UCL um, as a standalone post um, uh, under Prof um, Haddad, who's another amazing orthopedic mm. surgeon and learned so much from him and his team. And um, I was lucky to get all my kind of alternative forms signed and I worked very hard to, to, to do all that. But um, again, I don't think that's possible now, but I'm, I, I would consider myself just super lucky for doing that. Yeah. And obviously yeah. element of hustle involved, but you know, I really, I really tried to make sure that I gave myself the best opportunity to learn as much as possible in orthopedics. Mm. So it was an interesting foundation program. The first half was was difficult. Second half was more what I wanted to do. So mm. Mm. David, so at this point, right, that's a quick question. So throughout med school, throughout foundation year training, and then starting orthopedics, right, for someone who likes to push the boundaries, bend the rules, tear things apart, did you at any point think that, it was all very regimented, boxed in guidelines. What did you think of that? How did that fit with your personality? Yeah, I think I think that's um, that's an interesting existential question, isn't it? You know, mm. medicine is very much like trying to create a certain type of personality. I think we we see this from the interviews. I used to I used to do MMI interviews at med school mm. yeah. so in my in my latter years. I noticed that the, our mark schemes and our questions are, are basically designed to find a particular kind of person or yeah. mold them into that person by the end of the process. And yeah, I mean, not just me, but I know so many like hugely talented people. I know one guy who could, who could play like 25 different instruments and he recorded all these albums, and I, you know, um, you know, and I don't know if he does as much of that anymore, but, but, um, and there are plenty of plenty of people like that, um, that, that their talents and their their quirks, their out of the box thinking were definitely, um, I guess, constrained and, 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 you know, designed to fit within the tunnel. Yeah. We've got the blinkers on in medicine. You know, we're, we're given mm. that um, and I do talks on this. Right. We're given that kind of um, that 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 roadmap from cradle to grave of doing med school doing what the quickest you can become an orthopedic surgeon in this country is 11 years. Right. Mm. So if you don't, if you take no days or no, no years out or anything like that, 11 years, you work as a consultant and then you retire. 
whenever that might yeah. be. That's, that's literally yeah. it, you know? And we, we, yeah. we, all, we almost have our choices made for us in that whole process. Um, and so, yeah, it was difficult for me. And I think that's probably why I am where I am now. Definitely. Um, I do agree with you. I think maybe there are a few things that can be tweaked as the gateway to kind of pursuing a career in medicine. But at the same time, the flip side of the coin is when you're someone like me, kind of super influenced by anything and everything, you need a bit more guidance. You need to be kind of be told what to do. Obviously, after the podcast, things have changed significantly for me. But back then, I thought, this is the dream for me. I like to be told what to do. You know, a lot of the headache just tell me, I'm what you call like a, a, a super worker. Yeah, I don't want to think. I just want to be told what to do. I'm like, you know, I'm those type of guys, right? I don't want to think for myself. Um, so you kind of leave the F1, after F1, you did a standard thing at ECL. You've found yourself really good mentors that have kind of guided you and you're starting to get into your element. What happens next? What was the next phase of that journey? It's a good question. I think for me, I, I, I had my heart set on being an orthopedic surgeon. And I still do. Um, I will be honest with you. But there was mm. there was definitely something inside that, that yearned for more. Mm. And um, the problem is, by the time I was trying to work that out, COVID hit. So okay, you know, I was I was um, I managed to get into core surgical training. Um, that in itself was. An, you know, an experience and actually talk yes. about that experience on, um, on another podcast, um, Disrupting Doctors. Um, but so I won't go into too much detail here, but eventually I got into it and, you know, within the first like six months, COVID hit and um, was redeployed into ITU for um, about nine months uh, because I had some previous ITU experience and everything was put on hold. You know, life was put on hold. Everyone's mm. life was put on hold. Mm. Um, and I think it was coming out the other side of that where I realized I was really burnt out, you know, not mm. just burnt out from uh, the actual COVID experience of working practically every day and then seeing everyone you know, pass away, ventilating friends, etc. But it was more the, the fact that I was trying to work that, that situation, the answer to your question before mm. all of that happened. And I still haven't worked it out, you know, almost a year and a half later. So, um, you know, I think, I think at that point I started to look around to see what else I could do yeah. uh, that can satisfy what my inner goals were. You know, I actually was, was taking into consideration some of the questions that I went, went into one of our, um, one of your, your peer articles that I, I wrote for you guys, which are one of my core values. Mm. I start to think, well, yeah, I love surgery. And I love education. Um, you know, why not try and figure out something that I could do with that, you know? Um, but I think initially a lot of my, a lot of my frustrations were, were born out of what I was working with, you know, some of the software, some of the pieces of software that I was, um, using as a, as a trainee, uh, either for patient pathways or even sometimes doing hand-based consent, etc., cetera, would drive me up the wall. So I would, I would, um, this is when I actually created a, uh, a kind of beta, a very basic um, consent, digital consent based platform, which I applied to the clinical entrepreneurship program with. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that gave me a lot of insight because I met obviously part of that marketing analysis. I met loads of really amazing people that were already doing this and I pivoted, pivoted away from it really early. Um, uh, uh, one of them is um, uh, Concentric, which, is, you know, those guys are incredible. I love, I love yeah. Um, you know, every time I meet them, we have a great time. I, I actually have a pair of their socks that I wear. <laughs> yeah. Um, but 
you know, but then, but then working with, um, you know, some of the patient, um, patient pathway, um, uh, services like, uh, open medical had a solution, for example, and seeing how, you know, potentially I could help them and work with them. And so I started speaking to, um, CMOs and CEOs of different companies to see how I can, um, how I can contribute. And I realized actually I've got a, a lot to, lot to give, um, my mind mm. had clinical experience, um, and it also had an engineering background. Um, I'm, I'm very much a solutions based person. I like to come up with um, a solution um, to real problems uh, rather than, um, you know, the other way around, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and I, I, I guess, I guess, you know, tying that all in together, I realized that potentially I would be better off, not just working clinically, but also working in, in this kind of environment. So I guess that would be the beginning of that. That journey. Journey, yeah. And now that you've kind of discovered a bit more about yourself, and like you mentioned, your core values, you realize that you want to do more than medicine, not be stuck as a clinician or a surgeon. How did you kind of scratch that itch? I know you applied for the NHS Entrepreneur Program. You worked with a few things with the software. But how does when does things start to pick up pace for you? When do you start doing all these what we like to call alternative roles, you know, how does that fall into place in your, in your journey? Yeah. So I think, um, I think initially, you know, that there's a lot of academia to my background and I'd, so I'd already been working really hard on that throughout med school and throughout my medical career. And I realized that I really wanted to do something that was still based on academia, education, um, and still related to surgery. And that's, you know, relating this back to, question what are my career core values well if i'd gone and worked in just a SaaS company for example that had some relation to surgery but it wasn't really hands-on and it wasn't really super academic i think i might have burnt out again because i wasn't satisfying what i really wanted to do deep down so um at this point i was looking around it's actually one of my close friends um and from you know via the clinical entrepreneurship program um i saw uh, elliot street from innovus uh, he gave me a short talk and I was like, hang on, this, this sounds really interesting. Hmm. And, um, he had a, he had a job opening and I, I think I've heard on your podcast before that the front door doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. You yeah. never exist. I literally applied for the front door here. I literally okay. was like, I don't think I'm worthy of this job, but I'm going to apply anyway because I believe in what he's doing. Hmm. Um, and at that point I got invited to an interview. You know, we got along like a house on fire. I didn't think anything of it because you know, I was working so hard as a core trainee at the time. And, hmm. um, and I knew that there were lots of people applying for this job. I thought, you know what, front doors don't exist, right? And a few months later, I found that, yeah, I had been offered the job. And oh, wow. since then, I've got to be honest, like since then, all of that that had been bottled up for a while in terms of all my innovative ideas and perhaps all my... Um, you know, uh, my, my, my closet engineer, as I said earlier, yeah. all of that has now flourished and grown. I've got to be honest, you know, um, Innovus and, 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 and the team gave me a, a strong platform to grow from. When we talk about mm. growth, it's, you know, it could be measured things or unmeasured things. For me, it's, it's, it's been in a multitude of factors, um, since then. And I've really enjoyed all of it, what I've been doing there. You know, I've been able to apply surgery, apply academia education i've done so much more teaching even um uh, on that um as part of this role 
um, whilst also building new products and, and exercising my engineering mind, whilst also exercising my marketing and commercial mind, whilst exercising, mm. um, you know, even business strategy. Um, mm. It's been it's been amazing. It's been incredible. I want to talk a little bit about Innovus, right? How has Innovus created that work culture for you? So you, you've talked about the bottom lid essentially being opened, right? A lot of us, a lot of our listeners will be entrepreneurs, have their own startups, their own companies, and they'll want to form a team eventually. And they've, Innovus have clearly recruited you and they've taken the cap off and you've really started to come into your zone there. What is it about Innovus? What do they do so well? This is this is a key question. And this is now, you know, now that I'm in a position where I'm now advising startups um, mm. through, through Q Capital Ventures, which I started with a few friends. Um, one of the things that we, we focus on is ensuring that, you know, that you can have 10 people apply for a job, right? And nine of them have incredible CVs, but you only get, get along with one of them that doesn't have the best yeah. CV. Well, I would prefer to pick the one you get along with. You can teach them mm. a lot of the stuff or the gaps in their CV. If they don't know how to fully code, well, you could probably teach them that. If they don't know how to, um, you know, write publications properly, but they've got a few, you know, we can teach them those things. The whole point of, mm. um, of, of bringing someone into a role is not bringing someone who's absolutely perfect and can, can do everything. Yes, there are, you know, applications to that, but yeah, I think the whole point of these kind of roles is to find someone that you'll get along with that you can nurture and that you can grow. And that's what I got from Elliot Innovus from, from day one. Um, you know, even yeah. when he was calling me saying, look, please come join us, um, <laughs> you'll learn from us. Yeah. And I think that's probably what sold it to me. It wasn't that, oh, this job is well paid or this job is whatever, because you know, it, it's, it's, it's more about, it's less about the opportunities and, and, and those kind of things, which you can find elsewhere. It's more about what you can learn. Yeah. Um, and I think I think at the end of the day, um, that's what attracted me to it, um, you know. And and it's and yes, there are roles that out there that probably have better perks, better pay, etc. But for me, it was more about what I can learn, and I've learned yeah. so much in that time. Um, and when it comes to culture as well, you know, one of the one of the things that I say all the time, we all say this actually, it's it's like working with friends. It doesn't feel like you're working yeah. with colleagues or it doesn't feel like work, you know, the meetings that yeah. we have, sometimes we have 20, 21 hour days, genuinely. We were, oh, we were wow. at a conference a few weeks ago where for seven days straight, um, we were working from, you know, 6 a.m. I think one of the days we had a 6 a.m. 5K run. And then <laughs> by, by 8 a.m. we had breakfast, showered. We were at the conference. We were there until about 6, 7 p.m. And then we had client dinners in the meeting until about 11 p.m. And then we have mm. a few hours sleep and then go back to it all again. <laughs> it's crazy. It was, it was like, um, you know, it's really intense, you know, it's more than more intense than, than NHS shifts, but you feel less mm. tired because you feel more filled and you're working with people that you love to work with. So yeah. I think the culture is definitely immersive. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard working. Uh, we're constantly turning up. We're constantly um, working um, every day, chipping away as Elliot puts it on whatever we can do in order to achieve our, our goals and our mission. Mm. But um, at the same time, it's it's such a friendly um, environment that actually doesn't feel like work. I've got to be honest with you. It's amazing. Amazing. So, so it sounds like a key part of the driver is that there's a sort of fit, a clear fit between you, the mission and the company there. Um, that's really cool to see. Another question now to follow up on that. 
So you just said a 21 hour day. So in the startups uh, scene, sort of, that's very common, right? You're doing 18 hour days, flat out, working on so many different things. I think a lot of people fantasize actually about starting up, working for a startup, joining a team because it looks cool on the outside, right? But it's that learning element that's such a powerful driver. Just tell us about some of the things that you've learned and how it's contributed to you then, say, picking up other roles, the, the Q Capital Ventures. Um, what things have you actually picked up at Innovus? That's, um, that's a really, really good question. Um, I've actually learned a lot about uh, business strategy, um, mm. learned a lot about marketing strategies as well, which... Um, I'll be honest, I, you know, I knew a new aspect of, I'd learned quite a lot from um, CEP and um, even the website that, that Tony, uh, Tony Young has called the Anhorn, mm. for example, which is a fantastic website. Um, there's lots of things that I read about, you know, um, online MBA courses and things like that, which yes, you, you get the theory, but then how to apply that is a completely um, other story. That's what we're, that's what we're doing in sim surgical simulation, you know, understanding yeah. the theory, but then applying that is, is is, um, is, is key. Translating that from theory into real life is, is some of the hardest things that we can do in anything. So seeing that firsthand and learning that from, from these guys, um, they've obviously done a fantastic job at it. Mm. Um, and so I was able to then apply that, extrapolate that um, into, into the, you know, what I do now in my other roles, um, which is, you know, which is really, really amazing. It's kind of gone full circle. You know, um, yeah. at, a, at an amazing speed as well. Um, you know, I do I do tend to pick up things quickly, but I didn't realize I could pick it up this quickly, for example. And I think yeah. that is testament to how well um, Innovus does things in regards to those those particular topics. You know, um, absolutely. And obviously, I, you know, it's it's a two way thing, right? Mm. There's a lot of academia, a lot of academic principles that I've also imparted in the other direction. And I think that's what's yeah. beautiful about startups and scale-ups is that you know if you go into a big corporation like McKinsey or something like that you you're you're, you're um uh, I don't know why I picked them but I, I think you had a, had someone recently speak about them at depth right um I think you you end up being placed in a JD or a role that has specific requirements and KPIs and you're you're within a, a, a particular protected kind of boundary of your job similar yeah. to being a surgeon or a doctor right but these scale-ups or, or, or startups, your, your role can be so multifaceted and varied that each day can be completely different. And as a result, you have more opportunities to either immerse yourself in something you're really comfortable doing, or the next day you could be doing something that you have never done before. And you have mm -hmm. to learn how to do it or learn from your team how to do it. And so I think that's what's been great about you know, working in this environment and, you know, to anyone that is looking to make this kind of jump, you know, I would recommend mm. that it's, it's, it's so interesting to pick up things as you, as you, um, you, you go along and to share what you know as well. So yeah, Absolutely. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely. The question I had was while you're on this journey, you're learning so many things, you're kind of discovering yourself. Were there moments where you missed being a surgeon? Ah, this is a good question. So I, I was actually juggling both roles 60% each until April last year. Um, mm. so there's not, there's not more than 100% is there, but yeah, that, that was pretty hard. I was lucky that I was working in a hospital. Um, so St. Helier, Epsom St. Helier were 
amazing with me to um, have asked for um, my rotor in advance and, and the things I was doing in advance, and they worked around me, which is really incredible. I know that wasn't going to be as easy for um, registrar training, which is why I haven't continued with it at the moment. Um, but they have allowed me to continue working there, um, you know, when I, whenever I can. I tend to go in there on weekends um, to do elective uh, hip and knee uh, stuff with the consultants that I love working with. Um, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to still get that exposure whenever I, I really want to. But I'll, I'll be honest, the other day I was, you know, working on our laparoscopic trainer here um, at yeah. my place for about six hours straight. Um, meetings in between and so oh, I was, wow. you know I am satisfying that surgical itch I guess yeah on a regular basis that's that's comes back to what I said earlier which was my core value was surgery if mm. I was to go into a role where there was going to be nothing hands-on I would have gone crazy because I wouldn't have been satisfying that itch so I think I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to, to to do that both in a simulated environment but also keep my hand in clinically and I think that's really important um, for anyone thinking about these kind of jumps is that, you know, leaving clinical medicine and or surgery completely is, you know, it may be what seems great or what, what you might want, but I think it's always important to keep a hand in because you're able to then provide tangible, um, feedback and tangible, um, uh, advice, uh, to, to the company that you're working for. You know, if you have no experience of the front line or no experience of an OR, how are you to know, um, how, yeah. to, how to answer some of the, 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 the business related questions that we're, we're trying to solve. So um, it's really, I think it's really important to keep your hand in. So yeah, I do, I do miss to an extent, you know, the, the, the camaraderie, the, the, the um, you know, working in the hospital, you know, the elective work on a weekend is not quite the same. Mm. Um, I mm. do miss working in a and &E. I remember I did like a 12 to 14 month A&E job in UCL. That was amazing. I saw some wild, weird and wonderful things. And I do miss a and &E. I miss that kind of, you know, sometimes when you see someone and they've injured themselves and they need suturing up, closing up. And as you're closing them, you talk to them, yeah. you understand about them, you learn from them. You don't get that on an elective list when the patient's yeah. asleep and you're placing their hip. Hmm. But um, yeah, so I do miss that. I've got to say, and I think, Hopefully, as I grow as an individual in this in this industry, it will allow me to have more time for that. Right now, I'm full time in the industry because mm. of the the level of scale up Innovus is doing. Yeah. It means that I really have to dedicate pretty much every hour that I possibly can um, yeah. towards our mission. But obviously, once we get to a stage where we're more comfortable, we have a bigger team, um, perhaps I will. Yeah. Mm. So this is the the. the the follow-up question and you kind of nicely mentioned it you're spending a lot of your time doing innerverse super busy how do you at the same time make the time to do the other roles you're doing and you strike me as someone that gives her you all you know you said 66 percent anyone that knows about it you know it's more than 100 percent. if you're fully committed and kind of you know killing it on the innerverse side how do all of your other ventures and projects, I know you had like a humanitarian organization for war-torn countries, yes. advising startups. How do you do all of that stuff? You know, make it make sense to me, David. <laughs> uh, <laughs> someone said, do you sleep once? I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, actually work I have been sleeping more um, because I've been um, doing less night shifts, obviously. Um, but 
No, it's, it's actually really hard. It's really hard work. I've got to say there are a couple of like basic things that I do, which is having a really tight calendar. If I showed you my calendar, it's ridiculous. You know, there are blocks mm. that I, that I have for um, different things that I'm doing. And um, certainly delegation is really key as well. So um, I have people that I work with at Cube Capital Ventures and in the yeah. international organization for reconstruction, where we're able to um, keep things really uh, kind of shared amongst the teams, for example. Hmm. Um, and, you know, certainly with Innovus Medical, um, sometimes it can be more than just a weekday thing. It's a weekend thing. So then it becomes hmm. about where can I squeeze in time to focus on other things? Yeah, it would be early in the morning, late at night. Um, you know, there are times where I'm sitting on my laptop, like in the middle of the night, doing stuff <laughs> for other roles. Or, yeah. You know, even tonight, for example, midnight tonight, I've got a deadline for a paper that I need to give um, feedback on, which is based on the WH one of the WHO roles that I have in, in research education at Imperial College. And that, that means that I have to, I don't have time to look at that today. I'm going to have to look at that late in the evening. And so mm. I do really make the most of every moment you know sometimes even when i'm in the gym and i know the gym is meant to be a place where you switch off but sometimes yeah. when i'm sitting there trying to catch my breath in between sets i will quickly open my phone and hammer a few emails or write down some notes or something so i really i just i guess the way i'm trying to put it is i make the most of as much time as possible so mm. that i am able to tick the boxes of what i'm trying to do and yeah, it's not always perfect. Sometimes things do get neglected for a week. So for example, you know, there hasn't been a huge amount of work on the IOS um, uh, since January. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and as a result, I know that's going to pick up a little bit later on, but it means um, that I can focus on some of the crucial things that's happening now in, in um, uh, Innovus, et cetera. So um, it's, it, it ebbs and flows in terms of yeah. what is getting my most attention. But at the moment hmm. I've got to say, what I'm doing in us academically, um, you know, going around presenting all these conferences, gathering this data, um, hmm. trying to also work to build, you know, um, uh, funding for PhD students and, and helping um, the, the evidence base behind surgical and healthcare simulation. Hmm. It's such a passion of mine that I've, I've put so much energy into it anyway, um, naturally. And if you yeah. love it, it doesn't feel like work, right? Yeah, I think the one thing I was going to say is, Obviously, there's always an element of being organized, you know, kind of schedulers, you know, maintaining your time and effort. But I think for someone like yourself who really enjoys the work, it doesn't feel like work. It's like play. Hence why you're able to take on all of these roles. Do you? And if you think about it, they're all kind of aligned. They're all aligned with your core values, your core mission. Um, and it, it, one doesn't take away from the other. If anything, they all kind of compound together, make you as a better individual. Um, tell us a bit more about kind of the, the humanitarian work you're doing in kind of these war-torn countries. I know you had, you know, a big play with the Ukraine stuff. Uh, how did that idea come about, you know, because philanthropic, charitable, I feel sometimes has a certain personality, a certain mission value, whereas kind of a commercial side with Innovus, how, how does, you know, how do you make that decision? Where did that all come about from? So it's a good question. Just and just by the way, to follow on, you know, mm. a lot of a lot of this multitasking ability, I've got to be honest, I didn't have until I worked okay. as a doctor for what eight years. You know, um, <laughs> you guys know what it's like on the wards. Yeah, you can be torn in ten places at once. The amount of times, the amount of times I've I've said to the nurse or to my reg, be like, look, I can't split myself in two yet. <laughs> but when I do, we'll yeah. all be billionaires, right? Um, 
but it's true you're you're literally torn in so many different directions you've got a you got a you got to, um, you know, I guess, check and balance yourself in terms of what's clinically and what's time important and the combination of the two. Um, it's really tough. And I think that prepared me for being able to do this, you know, 100%. Mm. Um, but back to back to the humanitarian stuff, you, look, you know, after working with um, the WHO and Imperial College and seeing what they do, it's, it's, it's very inspiring. It's really inspiring. Mm. Um, and I've always, um, you know, even what's happened in, in Turkey um, yesterday, it's just yeah. really torn me apart. And I think we're going to have to kind of see what we can do over there and focus over there. It's really, it's really heartbreaking. Like genuinely, it was like close yeah. to tears last night. And I'm trying to, trying to figure out how we can potentially help them. But what we've done, for example, Ukraine and, and Libya um, are the two, are, are two focuses is, is, um, it's actually a multitude of things, but a lot of what we do is based on introducing um, businesses, introducing yeah. investment, introducing academ academia, um, connecting universities there to universities here, connecting mm. um, uh, digital cities as well across the two sides, um, helping um, also you know government level bodies or um, people that are, are trying to get to that level as well, um, try to understand their populations and, and th those kind of things are really tough. Um, I can't go into too many details on the podcast, no, of course. But, you know, um, mm. those things are really, really tough to, to, to overcome, especially in those kind of places. Um, mm. but yeah, I think, I think it, it is, it is a very satisfying thing to do personally, but also, um, when you see a project gain traction, it really, you know, it's, it's really nice to see the, the positive outcomes from it. So yeah, hopefully, um, I'll be able to, advance that even further obviously it's it's mainly just two of us working on this and it, as you can mm -hmm. imagine it's, it's very difficult how yeah. i got into it by the way was um through the national liberal club um i actually met my local councillor here and yeah. they invited me over there i met um david rubens who's a, a, a doctor a phd actually um who, who works for the isr institute for strategic risk, risk management and you know he introduced me to this whole world that that um that he works in as well. So it's, it was really fascinating um, learning from him um, and he's a bit of a mentor mm. to me. So I've got to say, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to provide more tangible things to, to these countries and hopefully to Turkey as well. Um, fingers crossed. No, definitely. And I think the beauty of it all is you have a skill set where you are in a position and place to help. You, you can bring something genuine and impactful to the table that, that kind of leads me to the second question. You're, how important is it, or it might not even be important at all, when you're working with kind of these organizations, you know, you are, you are working with kind of Imperial College, WHO, you've been working with the basics, you know, in the Surgical Society, accredited by Royal College Surgeons, Innerverse. How important is it having kind of these credible organizations on your CV or having that experience? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it valuable? Is it a waste of time? Can you hear your thoughts on that, actually? I think it depends what it is that you're getting out of that organization, um, mm. you know, and what you're providing as well. I mean, if it's a superficial engagement, then it's probably not going to be worth worth it. But I do know people that love to build CVs based on that. Um, you know, I think there is an element of that with anyone. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but that shouldn't be your main driver, your main focus. It should be about what is the bilateral conversation that we can have here? What can we both gain out of this? You know, 
my engagement with the with the Royal College of Surgeons, for example, is that I, um, you know, work very closely with Innovation Hub, um, that's led by Ryan Kirsten, who's incredible surgeon, incredible uh, innovator and leader. I think he's exited um, his own successful business as well. You should probably get him on the mm. podcast. Yeah. Um, but he, um, you know, and and also I'm, I'm faculty for BSS. And why? Because we create BSS modules ourselves at Inibus. And so everything mm. kind of ties in together. It's a two-way thing. You know, I'm not yeah. just, um, you know, just a member for nothing, you know, but I've yeah. taken the exams. You know, I, I do... Um, I, I do, I, I'm passionate about what the Royal College of Surgeons are doing. Um, and I think at the end of the day, they are a blueprint for um, surgery around the world. And, you know, now working with the Middle East, we're seeing a lot of, a lot of what the Middle East are trying to do to prevent their kind of brain drain of, of people leaving the country to come to the West to study. Yeah. They end up staying here. They're trying to now retain and, and do, um, do their own medical school and surgical training. Well, they don't yeah. look at the American College of Surgeons. They look at the Royal College of Surgeons. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, it's it's you know, that's fascinating when when you consider that perhaps the American College, College of Surgeons are pushing the boundaries of innovation further. So, yeah. so you know, I don't know if I'm going to ruffle any feathers here, but it's true. <laughs> and I think and I think that's why the Royal, Co Royal College now is trying to trying to push boundaries themselves. Um, and and that's why the iHub has been set up. And I, th I think mm. that's going to be probably the leader in the world when it comes to tying. Um, what the surgeons are doing with innovation, um, but but as a result of that, I think you know, it's it's got to be back to my original point. It's got to be a two way thing. You know, there's yeah. no point in joining these societies just for the CV purposes, because then when it comes to you know, an interview like this or an interview for a job, how are you going to explain yeah. yourself? What are you doing for these um, these organisations? Yeah, yeah. What value are you bringing? Because then it it will it will give credibility to yourself as well. No, and I'm glad you, you, you echo that mentioned that because the nature of medics is that we, we are CV builders, let's be honest, we did it to get into med school even, but, but it's just like I've worked at XYZ company, I did XYZ and there's no real value. And then you, you, people, someone comes to you with a project or an idea and you look at the CV and like, hey, you, you'll be perfect. And then you speak to me and it's like, yeah, do you know what? I just did the abstract for this paper. Do you know what I mean? It, it wasn't substantial. Um, pieces of work. So yeah, I, I agree with the whole value it needs to go both ways. Talking about value, tell us a bit more about Q Capital Ventures, you know, helping startups, acquisition, fundraising. How did that come into the picture? Um, I think you're doing that with someone else you mentioned as well earlier. That's right, with two, two other people. Um, and we actually now have potentially a US partner to talk about. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, won't go into too too many details on that. But but basically, um, this was actually really really nice setup here. We've got um, two of my really close friends. One of them I went to med school with, mm -hmm. who's now a director for an international electric vehicle company. Mm. And um, and then the other guy that we started it, started it with was um, he's a MFA CFA. Um, so mm. he's, he's a he worked in Citibank for almost a decade. Um, you know, he's, he, he can build financial forecasts, um, uh, you know, as if it's, as if it's the back of his hand, you know? Mm. Um, and so between the three of us, um, you know, we're able to really give tangible advice, not just on business strategy, but also, um, you know, to gain investment, to build your pitch yeah. decks, to understand what kind of investment that you need for your stage of business. Um, and we can even dial down into the reads of what is what is it that you what you're trying to do um 
and uh, you know is it trying to solve a problem you know we've worked with fintech um we've worked with deep tech with health tech you know for example even some of the health tech solutions that we've worked with it's quite nice that we've got two doctors one of them a surgeon um to be able to provide like value to to their problems we've, we've discovered usps that they haven't mm. been aware of for example we've helped them academically we've helped them from an R&D approach, we've helped them keep lean. Um, and I think between the three of us now, we've raised 22 and a half mil for various um, companies oh, wow. startups, which has been amazing. Um, and we, we're actually looking ahead now to the future uh, to to build an even um, stronger portfolio um, with, a, with a US partner, uh, which is amazing. really, really exciting. Um, I'm sure hopefully I'll come back and tell you about that one day. No, uh, for uh, sure. And yeah, so I think I think it's it's an interesting um, venture for sure. It doesn't, thankfully, at this at this point in time, um, it's not taking up too much of my time. Mm. But I suspect, you know, maybe in ten, fifteen years' time, this could be the thing that I do as my number one, as my hero uh, mm. role. So we'll see. We'll see what what happens. No, of course. And mm-hmm. I think what it seems like is you've surrounded yourself with really good, talented people. Like all the projects you're working with, even with Innovus and Elia, who had on the podcast, even with Q Ventures, you somehow seem to attract or be in the company of really experienced, passionate, genuine people. And obviously the question is, what is the importance of having a network, right? Obviously you're, you're, you're living proof of the importance, but for someone that's listening who is in the books, banging out, you know, hip after hip in the theaters and probably wants to have a, a, a startup of his own one day what is the value of a network and how do you build a network it's a good question look your network is your net worth <laughs> isn't that like some hashtag yeah. but it's true it really is um you know you are a reflection of your immediate people around you you know i think five to ten people around you as well so surround yourself with um people that are innovative innovative thinking that are forward thinkers that are thinking outside the box um, and how do you meet these people? Well, you know, for example, um, last I think last week there was a Somex talk where there was lots of yeah. um, networking opportunities going on. I think even during the talk, at the end, they were asking who's recruiting. You know, put your hands up and tell yeah. them, tell, tell the crowd who, what you're trying to recruit. Um, and that's how you meet people. And I think these kind of networking events, whilst they are really amazing opportunities to network and maybe get some food. Um, they're also um, really, really like one conversation could change your life, you know? Yeah. Mm. And I think that's what's really key here. But it's easy to be distracted by those kind of things. You know, if you have a focus, um, if you have an idea and you want to build that idea, and perhaps going to these networking events might not be the most crucial thing. But then if you distract yourself with those things, then you end up not, not focusing on what you're trying to build. Yeah. And so it, it becomes more about what should you attend. And so... Every, every, I think everyone's unique situation um, is unique uh, and, and it depends on what it is and what your goals are. Um, you know, if you want to become an advisor, perhaps learning as much as possible and going to all these events is really great. If you want to nurture your own idea, then perhaps going to the scientific conferences or to the academic conferences based on that idea might be good to understand what is the need, what is the clinical need, mm. for example. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, you know, this is face-to-face stuff, right? Yeah. I haven't even talked about LinkedIn and social media and Twitter. I mean, Twitter is <laughs> very academic, yeah. right? You know, yeah. Trying to understand what are the academic gaps in, in a particular piece of technology, Twitter's your one. LinkedIn is 
just the, the most amazing business network mm. social media that I've ever seen. It's, it's incredible. You know, I've, I've met some fantastic people on there. Um, you know, even, even meeting business partners on there is, is yeah. been, been crucial. And also sometimes those serendipitous chats that you have, like I, I met my counselor at the coffee shop downstairs who introduced me to, him, <laughs> you know, like that was, that was by pure sheer luck, you know, yeah. no one could have predicted that. Um, mm, I think I was, mm. might have been wearing my pajamas at the time. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, th these kind of things, you just have to be open and, and ready to talk to people. You know, I'm, I, I would consider myself a bit of a, um, introverted extrovert. So, you know, conquering your inner fear of speaking to people and going mm. around at these networking events is also really key. And so there's a psychological aspect to it. You know, I never used to post um, uh, on on LinkedIn or anything like that until mm. I start to realize actually there is value in doing that. Maybe even just posting what you're doing this week, for example, even mm. if it's just yeah. local stuff, it yeah. opens um, it opens people's eyes to what you're doing. And when someone likes it, it opens it to their network. And when someone yeah. else likes it, it opens up to their network. And so it can exponentially expand. And mm. when we think about some of the marketing strategies, um, you know, the timing of that post and getting your friends to like it within a certain yeah. time also helps push it. So yeah. you've got to think of, you know, not just the intuitive aspect, but the calculated aspect of what you do in networking, yeah. which allows you to make the most of um, everything that you do. So, yeah. When you say networking, right, what are some key factors to healthy networking? Because I imagine it can't be a sort of that person can help me with that. That person can help me with that. I'm going to ask him for this. I'm going to ask her for that. Um, <laughs> So what's what's what keeps networking genuine, sincere, and a healthy piece of activity? It's it's got to be for me the most important thing is it can't be one sided. You know, you want something from that person. Well, you you should have something to offer as well. You know, mm -hmm. it should be a bilateral thing, even if it's just a hello and a nice to meet you and great to expand the network. Would love to chat to see how we can find synergies and things like that. Mm. Um, that can be a very generalized offer, or it could be, well, mm. you know, you've got, you're working on something I'm really interested in and I can provide X that you might need, you know, something mm. as direct and as transactional as that can really get you somewhere sometimes. So I think there's no harm in, um, in exploring those things. It, it's gotta be, in my opinion, um, you know, that, that, that's what makes it healthy, you know, and, and, and mm. non, uh, and, and balanced as well. And, you know, yeah, um, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be that way. I think. No, definitely. Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you, you mentioned that conscious of time, yes. um, we want it to fit in, in, a, in, a, in an average commute. So, um, last piece of advice for people that are on this journey of self-discovery, you know, finding like you know, your article on the zone of genius, it was quite good. So t tell us a bit more about that piece of advice that, you know, our listeners from around the world will kind of find value in. I think, um, I'm going to refer to the zone of genius as well, because people like that article, I think. Yeah. Look, this isn't my idea, by the way, this is, I'm just going to say, this is, uh, Mr. Hendricks from the big leap. Um, and it's repeated again in the 15, um, commitments, uh, of conscious leaders. And I think there's actually a load of other commitments in that, not just working out your zone of genius. You know, there's, there's so many things about finding out who you are and how to be a good leader and how to, how to, um, 
invoke the best out of the people that you're working with. Um, but one of the most important things is trying to find your zone of genius, trying to find that that zone that you enter where you can lose track of time, that you can do something for what seems like an infinite period of time that you absolutely love and that you're uniquely good at and mm. trying to work that out. There are a series of questions that, um, that book helps you go through. My article mm. kind of summarizes it slightly, but I think it's, um, it's important to, to exercise that and don't forget this can change as well. So to exercise it regularly, to, to think about, and the same for your core values, by the way, to think about these questions regularly, to work out how you work is really, really key. Um, and how you can maximize what you're trying to do based on how you work and how you think. So, um, yeah, it's a really, that's a really general piece of advice, but try and try and practice those things. Um, yeah. I think, you know, making sure that you're at the top of your game in whatever you do, um, will involve looking after yourself as well. And I didn't tell you this earlier, but my third core value it used to be friends and family, but now it's me. And it mm. sounds selfish, but actually being able to look after me, being able to look after my sleep, my health, you know, my ability um, to perform drastically mm. increases and my ability to look after those around me drastically. Increases. Mm. So Absolutely. actually putting my core values me actually includes my friends and family and my work all in one, because that is me. That's the, the total of those. Some, some of those things is me. So, yeah. you know, Focusing on those kind of um, uh, notions means that you're able to to really give the best at anything that you do, whether it's one thing or ten things. And um, yeah, don't don't be afraid to to make the leap of whatever it is that you think is your zone of genius. Go and do it. You know, don't don't be afraid as long as it's with your gut instinct, but also calculated at the same time. You know, yeah. the best athletes, the best musicians, they're not just talented and they're not just calculated and they haven't just practiced. They've done both. They've got talent. So I'm telling you to find your talent, but also work on that talent. Yes. You can't rest on your laurels. I've learned from my yeah. mistakes that you can't do that. So you've got to combine the two together and that's how you become um, the best of the best. I'm not saying I'm anywhere near that yet and I want to try and get there one day, but that's mm. just, I guess, the advice that I can give. So I hope... I hope someone takes that away. <laughs> no, no, I think that's, that's great advice, to be fair. Um, you've had an incredible journey to date. I can tell this is only just the start. Like you're scratching the surface of what you really want to do, what you're going to be. Um, a massive thank you again, David, for taking the time out. I know you're super busy. I think we're one minute over the allocated time slot. Forgive us. Oh, no, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but uh, it's been super fun kind of meeting you. You know, you've supported us a lot, even with the stuff you're showing on PNN. Oh, um, but yeah, I think, you know, it was, it was good fun. And I think a lot of listeners will find value in your story and your journey and feel inspired as well, to be fair. Thanks, guys. Honestly, I'm, in, I'm inspired by what you guys are doing and disrupting genuinely and, and mm. um, decentralizing education and not just yeah. in one topic. This is what's really yeah. key. Like every time I see you guys post a new article or a new um, podcast, mm. it's about something completely different. I love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. So keep it up. I'm supporting you all the way. No, Thank thanks, you buddy. So much.